So now that we've kind of went through our normal uh, to-do list, let's talk about E3, the Electronic Entertainment Ep uh, Expo of 2017. We've seen this event evolve over the years. We saw it get ridiculous in like the 2000s where there was booth babes everywhere. <laughs> And, like, it became really kind of a, a show-off-y sort of event. And then it went to kind of a press event. And now they're starting to let some of the public back into it. So it's a mix of that. And I'll be excited to see what our writers kind of say about the event overall. Uh, maybe we'll even bring in some of them for the podcast next time, Zach. That might, might be something we do. That would be great. Um, but we kind of know a little bit of what's going to be at E3 right now. And once again, that of that major press event starts here in the next couple hours. E3 is in full swing as we speak. Yes. But we know kind of what's going on beforehand. All right. So what are some of the major titles that you've seen come out or be announced for it so far, Alex? Uh, one of the major companies to kind of put their word forward about a week or two in advance, and mostly because they kept having marketing leaks through like GameStop employers for T-shirts and things like that. Uh, Ubisoft, which is a company I'm always very critical of, them and EA. Um, because they have a tendency to release games in uh, a business fashion rather than a game development fashion. But they are working on Far Cry 5, which takes place in Montana. It's going to have a, a villain that's uh, very religious-based. He seems like a crazy Christian sort of guy, like KKK member level stuff. I don't know if there's a lot of, like, of that put into his character, but there's definitely like a religious cult at the focal point of the conflict. And it's set in the American soil. And a lot of people are having problems with that. There's there's some major controversy for Far Cry 5's kind of art direction, even though we don't know exactly what that's going to be yet. Yeah, I've actually seen several uh, like petition.org things shot around about it and people just in an uproar over it. Which, considering the political landscape right now, I can kind of see why everybody's on edge about things that take place in America. But as somebody who's, like, really into the art medium of video games, I like this kind of thing. Because it, we very rarely get to see video games, especially in the AAA space, kind of make a commentary of what's currently happening in our world, right? Anybody can be the bad guy. Anybody can be the good guy. So being able right. to see this take on cultish, zealot stuff happening in the white American community in Montana, America, maybe it's it's just another avenue to explore. Like it's not something to look at like, oh my god, you guys you guys hate everybody. You're you're you know, you're you're not American. Right. Yeah, you're shooting Americans. That's un American. Well, you know, sometimes we need to take a critical look on these sort of things. And books and movies and shit have been doing it for years, right? And we're just now getting to the point that we're comfortable, at least a little bit, to explore these more deeper themes and more relevant things happening in our world as it happens in the video game space. Like, we've seen the indie scene kind of try that. Uh, there's the game Riot that I looked at at PAX, which was a, a kind of a political commentary on the whole Riot situation in the world. Like, it takes place in real riots, major riots. And you can settle it either from the police perspective or the rioters perspective. So uh, we've seen this in the indie space, but I'm I'm excited for Ubisoft. I want to see exactly what they're going to do with it. Uh, part of me thinks they're going to kind of let it fall on its face. But there's the other very small part of me that's hoping like, come on, Ubisoft, like this. This is your big chance to make something great that will kind of last uh, for many, many years and still be relevant and be an interesting critique, so to speak, of the, the current landscape of America and how we're not afraid to explore these deeper and controversial and painful themes in video games. And I hope they really hit it. I'm hoping so, too. They, like you just said, it could just sit down 
hit every nail it needs to hit and become this historical gaming focal point from here forward. Because at the end of the day, if you strip away all that we just talked about, Far Cry is an open world shooter. It's about violence. It's about doing things flashy. It's about uh, comboing things together to like be su- a super effective predator, essentially. And that also plays with uh, the ecosystem at, and, at work and the environment and the, the opposition. But this is a chance for that game to be so much more. And I think they were kind of playing with this a little bit in Far Cry Primal, which I thought was an interesting project. I never got to play it myself, but I still really want to try it out because I like it when companies kind of go out of their comfort zone and try something new, especially in the AAA space. Yeah, you don't you don't see that a whole ton in the AAA space. It's usually everybody sticks to their guns because that's their money maker. Yeah. Now the other project that's um, that Ubisoft will be touting this year is the new Assassin's Creed, which takes place in Egypt. It's called Assassin's Creed Origins, I believe. Um, uh, we don't know a whole lot about it. We know it's in Egypt. We know there's going to be uh, some of the boat play that we saw in Black Flag. Um, this is a game that's not been worked on annually. It's had a couple years in development. So I don't know. Maybe um, there's also rumors that the combat engine and how the game plays is getting sort of a revamp, which is exciting because I've always thought Assassin's Creed was a good world, but it wasn't executed 100% well. In the beginning, I loved it because it was something new, except for playing the first game was mind-numbing because it was literally the exact same thing in a different skinned city the entire game. It was more of a proof of concept, but I like it in a history perspective because it, even though it is the same thing, it's that same thing kind of over and over again done pretty well. Like, I don't know. The first Assassin's Creed I thought was interesting. Yeah, but the uh, the whole Ezio storyline, that was great. Like, that was the high point to me in the Assassin's Creed uh, setup, the Ezio th- trilogy. For me, it, it is and it isn't. Um, everybody touts how great Black Flag is. I stopped playing them after Brotherhood, I think, the second one with Ezio. And that's when I thought the series really was at its weakest, using the same character and trying to build that story. Even though I like Ezio as a character, and I think he had some really interesting character growth. Uh, they kept cramming stupid stuff into those games. Like, there was a power defense thing that was unnecessary. There was a whole training of assassins and things that I thought pulled away from the focus of the the core concepts. I thought Assassin's Creed 2 was pretty good. Um, for, uh, a lot of the tools felt kind of samey. Like, at the end of the day, there was, like, one effective way to kill people, and then you basically just had different skins of the same way to kill people. Like, it, it didn't feel like they were tools. It just felt like they were different animations, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, I can I can agree with you there because I thought, which I think Dishonored kind of fixed. Yes, Dishonored's way of being able to let you choose what you did and have a different effect really hit home for that type of play. Once again, I haven't played that particular series. I have the remake on PS4 digitally, I think maybe, but um, that's another example because I've studied it a little bit. That like your powers and your abilities are tools that have very particular sets of rules, and then you can combine those to create different effects. And a good player will use all those possibilities to plan what he wants to do. If you want to see something amazing, look up Perfect Dishonored 2 runs. Like, that shit's insane. Yeah, I haven't played the second one, but the first one was awesome when it came out. Being able to choose I need to, play it. to save them or to kill people as you went. And that affected how people thought of you and how your outcome was going to like be determined. Yeah, it had that classic, like, you can play pacifist or you can play uh, murderous. And that affected your overall ending, which I'm excited to see games kind of work away from that dichotomy and start melding them together. 
they never explicitly say, and I think it was the first Dishonored, but like some of the times when you spared people, other people were like, all right, I'm going to take them and I have business to attend with them, which means they might go kill them. Or, you know, I'm going to put them into slave camps because you saved their life and now they've screwed my people over enough that they're this is what they're going to do the rest of their life. Right, which that's um, invisible railroading is what we call it in the dun- uh, Dungeons and Dragons space. Yeah, It's a technique to make it look like there's choices, but there's not really... You still end up at the same destination. So other than that, um, Dauntless, the uh, the game that's kind of excited for us Monster Hunter players, they just got a recent E3 trailer as of like day before yesterday, I think. Um, this trailer shows off not only more of the combat and more of the monsters doing monstery things, but it also shows uh, what the different armor types are going to kind of look like. Because we, we know what the game's going to play like. We The core system is there in the alpha, right? As far as like the world that's going to take place in, how they're going to do character progression, these are all things that are still being worked out by the team. Because I've been following this project pretty closely ever since I played it at PAX and previous to this. But um, this trailer kind of shows us the the town, the um, the way armor is going to be determined, uh, some of the weapons I think they even show uh, progressing. So I don't know. This this trailer kind of gives us a better grasp of what's going to be involved other than just cool characters doing interesting things to take down monsters. Uh, <laughs> rocket hammers. That was my favorite Yeah, part. rocket hammers are awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a team, like, I talked pretty extensively to uh, one of the executive directors or somebody involved in the, in the game, and this is a team that's, like, super passionate about Monster Hunter, and they're very aware, hey, our game's inspired by this, and we're going to embrace that. <laughs> like, we're going to use some of the cool ideas established in Monster Hunter and put our own spin on it. Yeah. And they're not like, oh, this is a unique thing. We thought of this. No, they're they're very aware of their inspirations, and they accept it, and they embrace it. Yeah, embrace it. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, you're always stealing like an artist. Somebody has thought something up, and you like that idea, and now you think of it in a different way, and you've completely used that concept changed it entirely maybe changed it none which is not good Mm -hmm. uh but if you change it entirely and you meld it into something else in its own you've still taken that idea from somebody else because they inspired you especially in the video game space this is very easy to track because we have things like genres and it's very specific genres usually like you can trace roguelike games clear back to like super early dos titles that inspired the genre um Open world RPGs you can trace back to like Grand Theft Auto 3, and even that was based off something else. Like, it's interesting. Oh, they're so exciting. Uh, Did you catch that Pokemon Direct the other day? I did not. I was at work. That's, uh, I think that's what I was asking you about it. It was very brief. Um, A lot of us were very much hoping for an official numbered traditional Pokemon game on the Switch, which is coming eventually. I mean, it's got to, right? Um, but we did get Pokemon Tournament DX, which is the, the same Wii U game put on the Switch. It's got the features that the Switch should have, so different control types, portability, playing online, playing with people locally. And then it also has uh, Decidueye from Pokemon Sun and Moon, the grass final evolution. It's going to be a playable character. And then all the DLC characters and characters that were in Pokemon Tournament, I think, that were released as DLC, they're going to be in this new one as well. So it's kind of like what we saw with uh, Mario Kart, how Mario Kart came out. It had a little bit of extra stuff, but it had all the other stuff that was added in digitally to the game, which I don't know. Like, I'm kind of cool with this because I love the Wii U and I wish some of those games would get a bigger audience. That way, like those developers can move on to different things. But in, in another sense, I wish these games weren't $60. To me, that doesn't feel right. Yeah, that's a, it's a high price tag to put on something like this especially uh 
with the advent of episodic style things and the ease of putting DLC into these type of games, if you lower that beginning price point and you add like a higher price point for um, a much bigger or more exclusive DLC later, I feel like you can hook more of an audience, let them enjoy it more and get comfortable as part of your base following and then mm-hmm. let them grow from there. Like, let them choose if they want to continue to grow or not. Because as we mentioned earlier with um, Nintendo kind of getting a better grasp on the competitive scene, there's going to be a Pokémon DX tournament at E3. Like, th- this is another game that they're kind of focusing on. Like, oh, this is one of our major fighting franchises, a uh, traditional sort of tekken kind of thing. They're putting a bigger focus on the competitive nature of that game. I just wish they would have sold it at thirty nine ninety nine. I'd be all over it because I missed out on it on Wii U. But it, at the same time, I don't want to pay $60 for something that, like, I'm only going to play every now, especially fighting games. I don't like the $60 price range for fighting games if they don't have a ridiculously in-depth story mode, um, different modes like Time Attack and Survival, you know, things that Soul Calibur 2 had to make it really, like, a, a elongated experience, even if it was just different things to try. Yeah, because at the end of the day, this is a version of Pokémon with, like, a couple tweaks. It's not a substantial revamp with, like, 18 different characters or this is a different way to play. It, it's a very samey kind of release. It's I don't still, know. I just wish it was 40 bucks. I mean, at the end of the day, though, it's still some more titles for Switch, and that's what we need to see some more of right now to keep that Switch yeah. pushing forward. So if you're interested... And that comes out in September, September, I think, give or take. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll hear more on it in the next couple of days, too. Yeah, they're, they're going to have the Treehouse thing um, where they'll show off and talk to developers. So if you're really interested in some of these Nintendo titles and you want to hear a very scripted uh, take on their games, watch the Treehouse. I'm not a big fan. Um, obviously, I, I wish there was a better way to do it with Nintendo, but it's a very squeaky clean style um, scripted sort of event. And those will be going on through the next few days, all weekend into early next week. Also announced at this Pokemon Direct was Ultra Sun and Moon, which is kind of the black and white 2 treatment that we got. It's going to have a different um, story. It's got a couple different elements here and there, but it's basically an expansion to Pokemon Sun and Moon. And this is on the 3DS, surprisingly. Um, A lot of us were kind of hoping that we would get like a a third middle version for Sun and Moon, kind of like um, Crystal and Emerald on the Switch. But that didn't happen. Instead, we're getting this um, expansion to the the old Pokemon game, Sun and Moon, that released last year, and we're getting those this November. So um, this is another annual release. It's going to have the typical expanded Pokemon thing. I don't know exactly what they've got planned, but there's different forms for the two main legendaries, um, the bat and the, the lion, and I'm not really interested in it, to be honest. Like... I thought Sun and Moon was okay when it first came out, but it didn't gra- grip me as like Soul Silver did, or even Pokemon Pearl. And for those that are nostalgic about Gold and Silver, like me and you are, uh, that those two games are getting released on the Virtual Console for the 3DS um, the same day that Pokemon Tournament DX comes out. So if you're really into the old style Game Boy games and you don't want to play them on the millions of ways to emulate it, uh, you can play it on your 3DS and. Uh, the 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 wireless features that were kind of included in the the red blue and yellow uh, releases on Virtual Console, those are going to be included in Gold and Silver. Which come to think of it, why the hell didn't they put Crystal on this as well? Ah, uh, that's a good question. I don't know. What was uh what like was that the... seems like a no brainer, right? They need to just continue adding 
more of their stuff to this thing now. Because, I mean, everybody wants all of these things. Did it maybe not sell as much as the other ones? Or I'm not sure about its, like, profit versus budget background and reception. As far as gold and silver went? Crystal versus those two. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but speaking of virtual console, like, we really need some information about what they're doing for the Switch. Because if they completely drop the virtual console concept, that's going to hurt this console bad. That's basically like the bread and butter of Nintendo stuff is being able to keep the old classics. Right. And no other company to me does that better than Square Enix. Because Square Enix is constantly revamping their uh, their legacy, so to speak. Like, they keep doing remakes. They keep putting it on different systems. Um, they're the best example I can think of of really being in touch with your history and, like, making something with it. Yeah, they're taking examples from their history and exemplifying those things rather than, like, shying away from it or... Thinking of it as a, a, a relic of the past. It needs to stay in the past. Like, Square Enix has the concept of these are things that kind of exist perpetually through the ages. And I need that for Nintendo. Like, if they just would release entire NES libraries and say, hey, 10 bucks a month, you can play this. If you like it, pay an extra 5 bucks to download what titles you want to keep forever. Yeah. Like, how good would that be? <laughs> yeah, and for the amount of players that you would have doing that, that's a shitload of money real quick. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, yes, emulation is super available, and you can play pretty much anything that's been ever released, including shit that wasn't released. But those players that are still emulating are also the players that are more apt to buy when it's available. Which brings me to my next announcement. Um, Mega Man Legacy 2 was announced, and Mega Man Legacy is an interesting project. I highly recommend looking up the uh, the emulation talk on the GDC vault from like 2014 or 2015. It's by the guy who like really pushed and pitched the first Mega Man Legacy and how um, he wants to find a way to uh, get away from this demonization of emulation and be able to market these old games because there's a market for it. People are buying it. Um, it's pretty obvious. So they're doing Mega Man Legacy 2. It's going to have Mega Man 7 through 10. And it this is a package much similar to the, uh, the first one that'll have... Uh, concept art from the old games. It'll have challenges uh, built in the the um, environment of those old games, like do this section in such a in a particular time frame, or kill this many enemies, or what have you. It the Mega Man Legacy game is interesting to me because it shows what can be done with uh, an old style release. I want to see more. I just want to see the Mega Man X from beginning to end playable in the best way. Yes. Because I was a little disappointed with the first Mega Man Legacy Collection being the, just the old Mega Mans. And they had, mm -hmm. they had, up to this point, they don't have that Mega Man 7 saga, like, as a as a thing. Like, I want all of it as a thing so I can play it from beginning right. to end. It's got its own unique story to everything going on. It's one of those things, too, that, like, back on the PS2 GameCube era, they put it all on one disc. And the reason for the, the, the trepidation, I guess, for this studio to do this, because originally that was their plan, Mega Man 1 through 10. This is what we want to put on a single package. And they couldn't do it because it was super easy to get it working on these modern consoles through things like emulation, but they wouldn't put their, um, their money and their marketing and their printing behind an emulated product. Capcom wouldn't do it. So what they had to do is they had to basically recreate Mega Man in C++ or whatever to make it actually its own unique thing. 
So they basically rewrote every single game, <laughs> which oh. is why you can do these things like challenges because they can just use the code and create stuff. I mean, I didn't. And even the guy who pitched it. it, yeah, even the guy who pitched it was like, "This is a really long, arduous way to do these things, but it's also a way for us to essentially ship a product within six months." Huh. Otherwise, they could have done it in two weeks. <laughs> like, you can get it running on a PS4, and you can get it out into the world in probably a matter of, like, seconds. <laughs> it's not hard. Oh, wow. But the, that's the problem, is the industry has this, like, demonization of emulation. Emulation's a bad word. It's spoken in the same sentences as piracy, and piracy hurts sales, and, you know, like, it, these are things that... There's a big uh, study by PC Gamer that shows that piracy doesn't affect game sales. Like, a lot of your pirates will go buy it if they like it. <laughs> yeah, I mean... It, it's it's an interesting discussion for me, and I could talk all day about this. Like, this is a whole topic in itself. Oh, I'll talk all day about game preservation and emulation, because I'm thinking about writing a book about it, to be honest. Hey. I did an essay for it in that Super Nintendo book that's coming out soon. When does that come out? Um, I thought it was this summer. It might be sometime next year. Um, I'm not real sure. But when it does come out, people will know. It's, yeah. uh, it's Brett Weiss. He's got a bunch of other books out. He, he did an NES-style book that we're doing for the Super Nintendo. So if you want to get an idea of what we're doing for the Super Nintendo, go pick up that NES book. Yes, definitely. I'm excited. It's going to be your first like physical publication, correct? Yeah, yeah. This is my first uh, written stuff in book form other than the, the journal we had on campus. It'll be exciting, guys. you got to go check it out. Alex is a good writer, yes. and it's, it's going to be a fun I won't read. make money if you buy this book. But <laughs> it'll be cool. <laughs> um, so other, otherwise, um, Xbox, of course, is going to be really pushing their Scorpio, which was uh, a lot of details were announced a, a month or two back, right, through um, Eurogamer. And we covered that. I, I talked a lot about it. Um, it's going to be basically a super Xbox One. You're not going to have a different style disc. It's still going to be Xbox One discs just running really, really well. And it'll still play those 360 backwards compatible games, and the libraries will transfer over. This is a super Xbox. Mm, that finally backwards compatibility all the way through is what I want. Yeah, right? Like, if you would just take what, even if it's just what Xbox is doing, but on PS4, like, I'd be all about it. If I could play what I could play on my Vita on the PS4, I would never leave the PS4. I would always be there. Right. Like, oh my God. Like, I want to play Crisis Core on a PS4. Go get a Vita. You can play it on the Vita. <laughs> I know, but I want to play it on PS4. Yeah, I know, right? But um, it, it's there's a bunch of rumors spreading around because there's a lot of cryptic images that people have been kind of dissecting that kind of hints at a release date and a price point. And um, I, I watched a couple videos of people kind of trying to play with these ideas, and a lot of it points towards a mid-November uh, price point, which actually, I believe, falls into not only the release of Shadow of Mordor, but it's also within the Scorpio Zodiac sign. And that could be a coincidence. I don't know. I, I think it'd be kind of cool. And there's also rumors that it'll be um, shipped at $399, which is a competitive price point considering what the unit is. It's uh, probably a couple times more powerful than the PS4 Pro. Whether the software will actually utilize that is kind of up in the air. Because the Xbox One has had a lot of troubles with getting stuff to run it the full 1080p that we see on PS4, the full 60 frames per second, or even the locked 30 frames. A lot of times these uh, multi-platform releases are less of a, a visual... Th there's less visual fidelity on the Xbox version as compared to the PS4 version. And that's, a, that's something that doesn't sit well with Microsoft, I understand. So this is kind of them remedying that. So if they can sell it at the same price as the PS4 Pro and the um, the... 
the, it's only the pro, right? Like, didn't they announce something recent that's slightly stronger? Um, that's what I was. Or thinking. is that the pro I'm thinking of? I'm not sure. I want to say that there was something about it being able to be completely backwards compatible PlayStation library and also run 4K. Not that I know of. Um, I know the the pro I think is the not native 4K but upscaled 4K. If I'm yeah, that sounds right. Because there is a PS4, the PS4 Slim, and then the Pro, and the Pro is already out. Yes. Like you can go get the Pro now. I, I played it at PAX. At, I don't know. It doesn't look any different to me. But I play all my games in 720p. Right. And but uh, um, the the four um not the four the Pro has like an upgraded like processing capability. So like yeah, so things run smoother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like for me, example being Smite. If you're playing with seven mages, you know you'll drop frames and freeze out real bad if everybody's casting stuff at the exact same time on the normal PS4. Right. But the Pro seems to remedy that with its upgraded power. Now, do you have a Pro? No. Uh, I believe Chuck has a Pro. He swapped oh, it okay. because he was having so much trouble playing Smite without it. That makes sense. He's really into that. But I've been on the standard PS4 since uh, about a year or two after it came out. Um, but I, I don't know. I would really like to see that because we all kind of assumed that the Scorpio would be a premium version of the Xbox One. So we were thinking six, even seven hundred dollars because this thing seems to have a lot of bells and whistles and a lot of uh, potency. And for those of you who are playing on like 4K monitors and like higher resolution television screens, this is kind of the system to get if you really like Xbox stuff. Yeah, like its price point's great. Like there's they're winning being able to hit that price point and not charge extra because theoretically they could because it's new it's different yeah it's an upgrade it would probably still sell pretty well to your hardcore xbox people which is what this is kind of marketed towards but if they can stick that 399 price point i think we'll see a jump in success for xbox at least in american it's it's always struggled in japan but in the usa market i think if they really make it competitive to what else is out there because you have the switch at 300 the ps4 at about 400 if they can match that and be competitive, I think we'll start to see a little bit more um, sway to the Xbox side, at least in some titles. Other than that, man, a new Bubsy game was announced. What is Bubsy game? That's weird. Okay, so Bubsy is this weird um, product of the the mascot race of the Super Nintendo early 90s era. Um, he was... The, the lead developer talked about playing a lot of Sonic the Hedgehog, so it's a very Sonic-y style 2D platformer. And then there was, a, there was three games in total. There was, I think, two on Super Nintendo and a really, really terrible 3D game on PlayStation that run like crap and looked <laughs> like crap. It was a really early 3D title. But um, this is a game that's always been kind of known of being like a really, really... You think terrible games on the Super Nintendo? This is one of them. And for whatever reason, uh, that developer studio is coming back to make a new 2D, 2.5D, I guess. It's 3D models. A, a new platformer with Bubsy. And I don't know why now, of all things, this is happening. I mean, we've seen the re-release of Night Trap, um, which is coming to PS4 and such through limited run games physically and digitally through the PSN. And that game's terrible, but it's an interesting history point, right? And, like, I don't know. A lot of these kind of hokey, um, nostalgic, I guess, uh, retro points of history are starting to make a weird comeback. And... I don't know if this is the the proper way to do it. I mean, for their sake, I hope it's a good game, but I hate this character. He's frustratingly annoying. <laughs> That's not helping anybody want to get into the Nintendo scene, I'm sure. 
Um, yeah, I mean, the, the Bubsy legacy has been long dead for, what, 10, 15 years? <laughs> I mean, on that note, though, if it's been that dead and it's fallen out of everybody's thoughts and knowledge, it might be something that they could touch base on and see if they can pull some new folks into. Because, yeah, I mean, yeah. this at the worst, this could just be them renewing the copyright, <laughs> which I hope isn't the case, but that could be it. Ugh. That's why we got another Fantastic Four movie. I don't, know. I don't know who's fighting over the Bubsy license though. Like that's nothing I would buy. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not a that's not what I would call a a highly sought after thing. I'm sure there's an audience for it somewhere, but I don't know it, if it's good. I guess people will like it. <laughs> more games is always a good thing, right? Like the yeah. more titles we have as consumers, the better. Yeah, more games, the better. Somebody's gonna I like do- it out there. I mean, there's a fetish yeah. for everything, so there's gonna be a game for everybody too. Exactly. Uh, different strokes for different folks. But <laughs> I just don't see this being successful. Um, financially, critically, I don't see it working out. <laughs> yeah, but we'll see. Time will tell. And yeah, we'll either. Supposedly, it's coming out by the end of the year. So I guess we'll find out. I guess we'll find out a little sooner than later, too. So once again, I, I get a lot of details kind of fuzzy, but I'm pretty certain that's the case. <laughs> oh. So now that we've kind of talked about what we know prior to the big E3 show, um, once again, that's happening today and spilling into the weekend and early next week. Uh, Zach, what is, if you could have uh, two or three things that you really want to happen at E3, what would they be? Two or three things I really want to happen at E3. I want knowledge or like a solid release date on Kingdom Hearts 3. I've been waiting Uh forever for this game. Technically, it's number three, but also technically timeline number nine. But, I mean, on the same note, Final Fantasy with it. They're both in the same studio, so I want to see them both come out. Some sort of information on them. Yeah, um, unfortunately, there was recently an interview about Final Fantasy VII where they said it wasn't coming, and Kingdom Hearts Three, I think, in the same breath. They said it's not coming out anytime soon. Like, we're not going to see it by the end of the year, maybe even by the end of 2018. Because, once again, these are huge projects. Um, I think Square might be shifting their focus, like we talked about last week, with the whole IO Interactive thing. I don't know if they're going to do episodic stuff anymore with Final Fantasy VII. On that note, I find it is kind of a sad thing. But on the other hand, being able to have it all in one game, which they absolutely can put all of that data into one disc. Oh, with yeah. All of our data storage capabilities now. And you know Either what? Way. If it's multiple discs... Fuck it. I've been playing games on multiple discs because of Square Enix. Yeah. Let's get a PS4 title with four discs. Oh, my God. How big that would be. It would be. take like 800 hours to complete, but I'd be about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's no, do I'd, it. I'd be all about it because that would be setting a whole a whole nother level. Like, they would set the bar again for how much stuff you had to be able to do. Right. Like, how would that compare? Because you saw other companies kind of follow that back in the PlayStation day. They're like, oh, yeah, multiple discs. That's a thing we can do. Let's release bigger games. I also want to see... I know that it's not going to be there because they've already talked about uh, Death Stranding not popping up at E3. But I want to see some information here, something from uh, Hideo's team himself i want to hear some sort of information or maybe see him drop a surprise trailer which he's known for doing surprise things yeah yeah, especially with the whole Um, uh, moby dick uh studios hiding the phantom pain yeah yeah that was weird um i once again i'm kind of fady or shady on some details but either hideo kojima is gonna be at the event or he's going he's not gonna be at the event but we're gonna hear something about his studio 
Um, he did say that details about Death Stranding are going to be kind of sparse. I wish we would know how it played. Like, even if it's just, hey, it's a shooter. Or, hey, it's an interactive cutscene style thing like uh, Heavy Rain. Like, I just want to know what it's about. And that's the same thing that we need with... Um, we just need more details on these bigger titles that were announced a couple E3s ago. Yeah, and I want to see, on the note of that, like, Detroit Become Human uh, as, like, same yep. studio predecessor from uh, Heavy Rain looks gorgeous. So I want to see some mm-hmm. more about mm-hmm. that at E3. And, ah, just... It's going to be an exciting thing to play, especially if you like uh, cause and effect, choice and consequence kind of thing. This is going to be a very fun game to play. At least that's how it appears to be in some of the trailers and promotional work. Yeah, yeah, it looks beautiful. The graphics are great. Like, the way you do your choice and stuff looks very smooth and relaxed rather than harsh. Like, it's not going to be, like, up and overbearing in your face. And right. And for us, our friend uh, Tanner, he looks like he'll have a lot more time struggling with this one because he's terrible at choice games. <laughs> he spends a lot of time just like, what do I do? <laughs> no, no, because he always tries to play... Uh, he always tries to play dating sims and he can't win oh he just always gets like the the lackluster ending or whatever yeah or he like whatever doesn't let you finish like he gets all the all the bad stuff happening so we always put him in choice and consequence games to see what he does we need to do an episode on like dating sims and visual novels and bring him in i think that'd be fun oh yeah and he'll have a lot of knowledge on it yeah uh, he'd probably be the most knowledgeable person i know um but for me, like, this is a bit of a stretch, and a lot of journalism outposts have said, like, this is something that's definitely not happening. But I want it to happen because I love the Vita, and here's, here's my thought process. Um, I hope that Sony gets back into the handheld space. And the reason that I think this is a possibility is because they, they recently put out a patent for a Switch-style thing. I don't know if it was, like, a tablet. that Because there's been Sony tablets that play uh, PS1 games. Those have existed. Um, but I would really like to see them kind of get back at that market because uh, the Switch is super popular. Obviously, portable gaming, aside from like mobile gaming, is still alive and well and a booming business. So the marketing is there. The, the financial opportunity is there. And the Vita has like slowly become more successful as time went on because they're still releasing stuff for the Vita and it's still selling adequately well as far as I'm aware. So I would love to see them really put uh, more eggs in the basket in the handheld space than they are with the VR space. Because while I want VR to be successful, I don't know if it's ready for home markets yet until we could get that price down of uh, the actual units themselves. So I don't know. I really want them to see uh, some sort of another PlayStation Portable. I would love it. Yeah. Uh, Again, you know, with the Switch coming out, being able to rival as both a stationary console and portable unit, like, Mm -hmm. that flexibility is going to be something widely sought after, especially if they start getting into the VR market with it. I think it'll have a big influence on the way uh, video games are created here in the next five years. Oh, absolutely. You know, what is it's still every two years or something, our tech becomes semi-obsolete. So. Yeah, I mean, in the video game space, we we have a console lifespan roughly of about 10 years. Um, sometimes it's 7, sometimes it's 13, but usually we have about a 10-year cycle is what most companies shoot for. Um, but I do think that with the success of the 3DS and with the recent success of the Switch, it'll be hard for Sony representatives to ignore that because you know that the technology is there. 
And the reason the Vita failed initially wasn't because it was a bad unit. It was because it was um, marketed poorly and didn't have the uh, the Sony influence, so to speak. We didn't get a Final Fantasy game on Vita specifically for Vita. We didn't get a Monster Hunter. We didn't get some of those system seller games on that unit. You know, we had the Final Fantasy Crisis Core on PSP and PSP. Which sold PSP. Mm-hmm. Yeah, PSP did a lot of really nice stuff, but it was also... I feel like it was out just a little bit before everybody was absolutely connected gaming world-wise. Because that was... Yeah, it was it was no. that weird before time of before, like, Xbox Live and the different social media connections and all that. Yeah, it was, it was in that gray area before, but it was trying to pioneer forward in my, like, my understanding of it. And that would yeah, have been great. Yeah, because there was some online play. There was the old ad, ad hoc thing where you can very easily play with those around you. Like, there was some cool stuff for the, the PSP. Mm-hmm. And I think Vita tried to hop into that predecessor place of it, but it probably was perceived a lot like the PSP, which not mm-hmm. marketed well would be falling right back into that gray area category of people being like, oh, you know, Vita, it's it's a, a new PSP. Okay. And even we- it had some, like, big Sony names on the system. Once again, we had Final Fantasy. Uh, Monster Hunter sold it really well. I attribute that a lot to be the success of the PSP. And then you would have games like God of War, which were big American Sony projects put into the handheld unit. And I don't know why that fell out. Like, I don't know if it just became more expensive to make for the Vita. Maybe, um... One of the biggest things for the Vita was the fact that it still had proprietary memory units. And memory is a big problem on the Vita because a lot of the bigger games are, are take up a lot of room. But um, if they would just make another unit that had some sort of connectivity, either via uh, something like the Switch, like some sort of dock that allows you to stream it to the, uh, the television or a way to connect to the PS4 to play it through the television, and then also include SD card support, like that would be a really successful unit. Yeah, because you wouldn't have any at least kind in of, my opinion. Uh, yeah, I don't think you'd have any kind of memory problem, and that's um, as storage is becoming easier and more accessible. Not having that is becoming more and more daunting and like a, a roadblock to things. Like if I wasn't going to have mm-hmm. enough memory, I would you know shy away from something that's going to give me that memory. Right, because at the end of the day, the 3DS takes up less space digitally. It has a much smaller thumbprint on an SD card, and it takes SD cards. You can rock 128 gigabytes in it if you have the cash and you want to do that. And even the Switch goes up to, like, what, 2 terabytes? Yeah. And SD card, and we don't even have that yet. <laughs> like, that's not readily available. Exactly. It exists. It's just, it's it, it, was a, it was a move of them being like, oh, yeah, we're going to have our system for a while. And eventually you'll be able to put 2 terabytes in it, and that's going to be cool. A- absolutely. I mean, they have the upgrades. Like, you can upgrade your PlayStation 4 to have, like terabyte two terabyte library on it now but yeah it's got the whole um external uh hard drive support now too yeah but that's you know that's something extra you have to buy and ship into it that wasn't there in the beginning like if you knew Mm -hmm. it was there in the beginning you can automatically be planning for that long run being like and that might be part of the issue too the the ps4 has evolved over time because it was out what three four years ago and it started to see like an influx i don't know if developing is just easier on the ps4 or what but, like, we're seeing way more titles come out for the PS4 to the point that it's almost like PS2-level ridiculousness. Because yeah. the PS3 had a, a really big library, right? But the PS2 had a phenomenally huge library. And now we're starting to see that kind of resurge on the PS4. Exactly. Especially with all the uh, the indie game uh, possibilities on it. They're fantastic. 
And I think one of the most interesting things about this is not we're not only seeing games release at that $60 price point anymore. D- Dead by Daylight's coming out soon. I think it's a $30 game. Yeah, you know, you had, uh, was it Seven Days to Die popped out at the same thing. It was brand new, popped off uh, to console, 30 bucks. And those things yeah. still go on and sale, And Mega too. Man Legacy 2 is going to be like $30, $40. Yeah, these aren't coming out at that traditional $60 new game, new system. Right. You know, AAA system There's some level. flexibility in marketing and uh, price point. Yeah, and that's important. Like, being yeah. able to, you know, you got your brand new $30 game dropping, like, that's fantastic. Like, I'm a little excited about that already. And then to be able and to And it might be it like a, a niche title or a smaller project or what have you. Yeah, but Dead by Daylight being that is also a great point coming out. $40, it's been widely received on PC, so that's going to be a really interesting time, uh, what, in 10 days? We can see its mm-hmm. uh, sales hit console and exactly what it looks like to console players who might have been waiting around. And you know, that's kind of why I've always been into handheld. Played the Game Boy, uh, mostly because it was pri- uh, cost-effective. Your, your brand new games were usually 40 bucks, which is $20 cheaper than a new game. Sometimes you can get $30 games. Sometimes there's $20 games. Um, sometimes there's bundles that have multiple games stuck onto one cartridge. Like the, the handheld space has always been kind of about saving money, but also getting really rich experiences as time moved on. Because I've put more time into a handheld game than probably any console game ever. Because it, I can just take it anywhere. So anytime I have downtime or I'm in a space where I want to play some games, that's an option. Yeah, see, I never did much of the portable stuff because most of my moving around was either, you know, rough on me and my things, so I didn't want to risk damaging one of my portables, or I just didn't have people who wanted to do portable stuff around me. Right, yeah, the the whole multiplayer with a portable space or playing the same game as your friends, like we used to play Zelda um, back in elementary school, and that was huge for us because we were learning as we went. That was before the internet, so we didn't know exactly what to do. So we would kind of feed off each other and learn as we went. So do you have any Yeah, other- so E3's, um, I mean, other than Monster Hunter coming to America, those are my two biggest ones. And you kind of touched on what I wrote about in my uh, What I Want From E3 post on Marooners Rock. Um, the whole Final Fantasy thing. Uh, I'd really like to see an indie game kind of steal the show. Like, I want something to come out as a surprise from a much smaller studio and just wipe the floor with everybody. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, Because that's just fun. Like, I don't know. I love surprises at E3. I love surprises at major events. And it's always interesting when something unexpected happens. I think that's what people really watch E3 for. They watch it because it's, there's, it's full of surprises. E3's a surprising place to see new things happen. You get to see all the the stuff that you're waiting for and exact more details from it. But, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, like you were saying, Metal Gear 2's trailer released and stole the E3 show. I want to see something like that. Whether it's at the show, outside of the show, I want to see something happen during the E3 time that excites everybody. Yeah, just just floors the whole situation. Like, all your marketing people are like, shit, now what? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's what I want. Yeah, I want to see that marketing guy on the side like, fuck... He's on the phone fucking yelling in Japanese like 50 miles a minute. <laughs> yeah, like, we that, need to release a demo or like another trailer or some better screenshots or something. We're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, that or, you know, I, I would also just love to see somebody like mid-talk be interrupted by it and just jaw drop like, ah. Uh... Yeah, like in the middle of a, a Sony event or something, something major happens and just like everybody leaves. <laughs> Yeah, need to go find information about that. That would be (laughs) hilarious. Uh, But I don't know. I think that's what appeals E3. Um, 
the excitement, the hype. Mm-hmm. It's also important to um to kind of take everything with a grain of salt. Uh, these versions of games we're seeing at E3 are usually particularly marketed and doctored up, and this is the best angle of that experience. Um, the, my favorite post from a couple years back is, I'm excited for E3. All right, well, now you have to hold the 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 item of shame, and it's a collector's edition of uh, No Man's Sky, and you just have to hold it and think. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is what happens when you get overhyped. Oh man, I feel I feel bad. I've avoided the shit out of No Man's Sky because it looked oh, great I and I wanted to play it. And like all our buddies, like Eric and Tanner and all of them, were hyped for it. Funny story. I convinced Eric to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, like afterwards, I think about a month or two later, I was like, "Dude, I'm sorry for No Man's Sky." He's like, "I will never forgive you." <laughs> <laughs> I was talking because at the time, I'm like, "Yo, this is out. It's gonna be really cool." Because he's like, "I worked at GameStop," and he's like, "What? What should I play?" And I was talking to him on Facebook or the phone or something. And I was like, well, No Man's Sky just came out. That's probably kind of up your alley. It's big exploratory. It's got this and that. And he's like, yeah, okay. And he messaged me a little bit later and he bought it. And then several weeks went by and, you know, the whole fiasco went through the shitter. And I was like, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So for listeners, definitely take take our listening to it from different angles, what we're talking about. But also... Look into it. Don't just take our staple, and uh, don't and just... know that these experience might not released and how they're shown at E3. Yeah, uh, dig into stuff deeper. Always encourage you to read more stuff, look at more stuff, listen to more people. Be an educated consumer. Yeah, be an educated consumer. Be educated in anything you're doing. All right. Well, that's our uh, that's our pre E3 show. Obviously, there's a lot of energy surrounding this show. Um, we'll see how that carries throughout the week, whether our expectations will be met or if, uh, we'll be kind of, uh, disappointed. I imagine that's how I'll feel after the Nintendo thing. Cause I always do, <laughs> but you know, I, I don't know that this is going to be a, a fun time and it's always an interesting time in the gaming world. So, uh, stay, stay tuned for our next episode, which will be after E3. Um, we're going to talk about kind of our reactions, what happened, uh, some of the best takeaways from the show. And I don't know, Zach, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, you know, you'll find me on Twitter, Discord. Uh, I still have my twitch.tv slash exquisite liar, and that's what we're live streaming on right now for a lot of people who don't know. Like, you can come in and watch us do some of our raw show here before we edit, cut up, and doctor everything to be sent out for our podcast. And, and also we might spend some time answering questions too if there's actually an audience watching us yeah yeah when we start getting an audience at the end and uh just throughout the show we can take moments and talk back have a full interactive experience with you once again of course if you want to uh send a suggestion or leave some sort of commentary or just tell us some sort of detail we got wrong it's probably going to be me um hit us up on twitter you can find uh zach of course at exquisite liar in most situations and you can find me on twitter at number four Ever Classic 105. Forever Classic 105. Uh, spell it out and you'll find me on Twitch TV. You can hit up the Forever Classic Hub on Facebook. That'll include uh, some of the things that I'm doing on the side. Also, all of our podcast information will be there. And then, of course, there's the Forever Classic Discord, which is uh, another great group of gamers. I imagine your group is pretty awesome too, Zach. Like, uh, you guys are more into the multiplayer space. A lot of our people are more into the retro space. So there's some interesting community crossover there as well. Absolutely. Be sure to tell your friends about us. If you have anybody who's interested in gaming style stuff, 
bring them here. Get them into a video with us one of the days that we're doing a show recording. Let's have a talk back with you guys. Challenge us on things that we know or don't know about what's going on and what we're talking about. That way we can grow and evolve together. I imagine we're pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I like to think we are. I hope so. <laughs> oh. But all right, Zach, next time, host E3, let's do it. Yes. And stay cool. Alright guys, this week's music was Ultra Lounge by Kevin McLeod of Incomptech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Alright guys, join us next week with guest host Josh Pedroza, writer of Marooners Rock and also attendee of E3. We will be covering all of the post-E3 reactions and what we liked and didn't like.